Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by BlackRock Health, providing patients with world-class clinical care and comfort, enabling swifter recoveries. Now, first this morning, the Mayo Roscommon Hospice Foundation is this year celebrating 30 years in existence. Recently, of course, US President Joe Biden met with his cousin Loretta Blewett and representatives of Mayo Roscommon Hospice on what was an emotional visit on the final day of his tour of Ireland. Well, to tell us more about the work of the foundation over the past 30 years and the president's recent visit, I'm joined here in our Studio 7 by CEO of the Mayo Roscommon Hospice, Martina Jennings, and by podcaster and fund fundraiser for the hospice, Larita Blewett, who is, of course, also President Biden's cousin. Larita Martina, good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning, yeah. Miriam. Thank Lovely you for to having you us. Both. It's lovely to be here. Congrats on being the president's cousin. <laughs> um, listen, let me begin by asking you about his recent visit to the hospice in Mayo. Tell me a little as to what his impact his visit had for everyone there. Those pictures, Larita, they were so emotional, I thought. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the big thing. And it was a personal trip for him and it was a private visit. Um, you know, obviously the trip was phenomenal. I thought that Mayo looked amazing. I yeah. thought Balana looked great um, at the finale. But to have him at the hospice was just very special. And of course, he had come to turn the sod there just a couple of months after leaving um, his role as vice president. So to have him there at the time when we just had a, a blank feel uh, just grassing it at the side of the road in Castlebar to have him turn the sod and he wasn't that used to using shovels you could see for sure <laughs> so to get him to turn the sod or break the ground as they call it in the US um, to do that and then come back and finalise the trip by seeing how amazing it is and how what a wonderful place of sanctuary and dignity and respect for patients it was just very special and you mentioned there Larita like it was I think he first visited you when he turned the sod on the site in 2017 remind me and us how did he first get involved with the hospice I mean how did that come about did you just ask him <laughs> yeah just the did. power of persuasion yeah he's uh, he's very approachable and I, I think people saw how genuine he is um, and kind person that he is when he, when you see him on stage and all of that but he's just as nice of it um, very easy to chat with and um, ha- make a relationship with really so I just asked him um, when he I was there before he left office I was in the White House for the day that he received the medal of freedom. It just by chance happened to be that day because it was a surprise from uh, President Obama. So when I was finished up on that trip, I, I said to him, you wouldn't do me a favour. You wouldn't help us with the hospice, would you, while you're on your downtime? I know you won't have very much for doing after leaving um, office as vice president. I was joking about that, mm. obviously. And he said, of course, whatever I can do to help, just let me know. Keep me in the loop and uh, be delighted to get involved. So that's how it happened. It was very easy. It wasn't any more complicated than that. There wasn't an awful lot of correspondence needed to be um, taken place. I think she's underestimating though his love for her. Um, He is, as well as being his cousin, he he absolutely adores Loretta. Um, and you can see that mm. and that was very evident that, um, when he arrived at the hospice he was he was so proud of her he was so proud of the foundation and everything that had been achieved but definitely the friendship between Larita and the president is something really special Yeah think, it is yeah. and he's just that kind of a, of a man you know he's just honestly genuinely interested in hospice as well mm. and you know he just said to me whatever I can do 
I will help. Um, so he sent us videos when he wasn't able to come to the opening of the hospice. He was then president when we opened the Roscommon Hospice. So he sent his video for that. Um, he's just really helpful. Like he's he's just interested in it. What I love though as well, in stark contrast, I suppose, to his most recent visit, which was incredible worldwide coverage. His visit to you that year when he helped you, you know, turn the sod, it was very much under the radar. Like he drove himself and everything. Tell me about that. So, of course, he um, couldn't drive for like eight years as the vice president. Um, He was driven and chauffeured everywhere and there was no traffic and he was, everything was stopped up for when he was arriving. Obviously, he came to Ireland as vice president. So, um, you know, there was the same restrictions, not as much as he came as president, but pretty much similar. And uh, he was happy enough to rent a car uh, when he left office. So for six months after you leave office as vice president, you get a detail, a security detail. But after six months, then you're just left to your own devices. Um, so his staff used to say to me, he'd come into work around 11 to the office and he'd say, oh, traffic is so bad this morning. And they'd say, sir, there is no traffic at 11 a.m. in, in Washington, <laughs> you know, um, because obviously he wasn't used to traffic. He couldn't get over how much the price of things were because he didn't have to pay for like dry cleaning his suit or pick up milk at the shop or whatever so it was a big change to him everything um, but he has a huge love of cars and I think you've seen a few times how much he, he loves any opportunity for vintage cars and all of that so he picked up a car at Shannon Airport uh, drove his brother and his nephew up and they said uh, it was a few hairy moments driving up uh, the country roads coming to Mayo but he loved the opportunity to drive and to spend time with us in Mayo and it was really really lovely nobody knew he was there nobody knew it was him I took him back to Ballina after the day he turned the sod and we did the whole walk through of where he had walked as vice president and nobody was in the streets and he was wearing a baseball hat and stopping talking to kids and talking to people and nobody knew who, they were probably thinking who is this guy <laughs> um but he he was just he was just fabulous and uh, he, he was so generous with his time. Oh he was and the day he turned the sod the, the, the room or the marquee in the middle of the field that day was full of volunteers and support groups who had shaken the buckets and held the coffee mornings and done all the, the fundraising to get us to that stage and he really embraced that. He, he really understood that and that was evident when he visited a few weeks ago that what had been achieved from mm-hmm. fundraised income was is just incredible um, and a great respect for the fundraisers that day. He, you know his speech on the day he turned the sod was really emotional and there was one thing that struck with me that he said while Bo had family around him when he passed away in hospice that as a family they always felt for the people that didn't have anyone Mm. with them when they passed away and one of the first patients in the Mayo Hospice was a lady who lived out in Inishbegal and the hospice staff really embrace somebody that is on their own. They become yeah. their family, when they, you know, at the most important time of their lives. Yeah. You know, it is a special and a privileged time to spend with someone when they're in their final hours. But he got that. He really got that. Because, of course, with his son, Bo, and I think his mom as yeah, well, yes. Jesus, husband. and Martina, you're the CEO. So this time when he came back and he saw that dedication to Bo, I think everyone who saw that footage, even the photographs, they were so moving. Tell me about that moment and when he knew that you had also done this for his son Bo in the hospice. Yeah, um, I think Larita uh, would have told him about the plaque initially. So we, we laid the plaque where he turned the sod. But 
There was. It was. It's hard to put into words that moment when he got out of the car um, because it, it was so different. It's now the office of the President of the United States. So the lead up to it was um, it was an, it, it was an incredible week and it was a great experience it was a for us. It was a nightmare. It was a nightmare because you're dealing with Secret Service, you're dealing with mm. White House staff, you're dealing with Department of Foreign Affairs, the guards. Every, there's all, and there is, they assign you a staff member from each of them departments for the week. So it was. And we also had to remember and respect that this was a working hospice and there was 14 patients and I have to say everyone that worked with us really respected that um, and him uh, as much as anybody but when he did get out of the car and see the his name he he wasn't the president then he was a father who'd lost his son Mm. you know and a brother who'd lost his brother and his sister Valerie was there it was extremely emotional Um, and the visit was supposed to be just a few minutes, he came into reception. He met the Blewett family, which was a, a lo- that was equally as nice when he met, um, and particularly Rita's father. I, 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 I had to turn away at that stage. It, that that was every bit as emotional, but we really wanted him to see to meet the patients and the staff that work in the hospice, and he did as well. And that was the bit that was off camera that was extremely emotional. He, he, you know, he did meet a patient in his room who is end of life along with their family and he was so respectful of that moment. He was asking them permission. Could he come to the room? Mm-hmm. And, of, you know, they welcomed him with open arms. But he, them 10 minutes with that family was just something I'll never forget. Mm-hmm. It, was, yeah. it was really special. And I said to him mm-hmm. afterwards as well in the room before he left, I said, thank you. Thanks for doing this. I said, this for me was the most yeah. important part of your trip. And, I, and he said, for me too, he said, like, and he had books with him that he had written about Bo and he said to me, would it be okay if we signed a few copies and gave yeah. them to them? And and I think the significance of his sister Val and Hunter yeah. being with him on the trip. So he lost his first wife and his daughter in a horrific car accident, but his two boys were in that car accident as well and spent nine months in hospital. He was sworn in as senator at their hospital bed. First time, I think, ever uh, USA Senator was sworn in outside of mm. um, of Congress and he spent so much time looking after those boys. They were so ill. Um, one of them had a plate in their brain. They had serious, serious head injuries. And Val was his sister and his only sister and she took on that role as mother for them for such a long time. So, you know, helped him rear them. He he went famously on the Amtrak to yeah. uh, work every morning and took it every single day to and from Washington. Um, so there was huge significance in having mm-hmm. Val on that trip with him and obviously Hunter as well. So it was it was just really emotional the whole time. It really um, was. And was it special for your dad? I mean, Martina said she oh. found that moment. Was that special? Yeah, so Tell me about your dad. So my dad is, I, I did an article in the Sunday Independent a couple of weeks ago and I referred to him as my 86 year old father and he was not one bit impressed. <laughs> he said he was 87 and so I got that wrong. So he wasn't happy about that. He had has had a stroke, so he's okay. in a wheelchair-ish, um, can do a little bit of walking. But he was also with his sister who's um, going to turn 90 and who we've actually passed away, who passed away. We had her funeral last weekend. Oh, so so it was really sad, but it was lovely for her to mm-hmm. spend that time. And he was so gentle with her and like, touching her face and speaking really softly to her. President Biden. Yes, yeah. and he went down on his knees because dad was in his wheelchair, yeah. went down on his knees and he met dad and like 
you know, shook hands with him and spoke to him for ages and gave him a coin and was just so good with him. Like, it's just, it's, you can't force that stuff. You can't make up that kind mm. of personality. That's either there or it's not. And he's full of empathy and you see it in every part of what he does in ter- you know, in terms of speaking with children or families who've lost children in shootings in schools. You see how he takes them in to the White House all the time and, and has conversations with people who have lost people. You, you can't force that. It's either natural to you or it's not. And it's just natural to him. The amazing thing is there, you were both there when that extraordinary coincidence happened about the priest who was at the end of care for President Biden's son, Bo. Tell me about that, because that really was a coincidence. And we didn't know it until he got out of his car that day to tell us because we hadn't been, we were too busy making sure that everything was ready in the hospice for his arrival. So he told us about that um, and it was just an, an incredible coincidence. And then to see Bo's name on this uh, yeah. on this plate, and he he did he spoke he spoke about when Bo passed, and that this priest had been there. It, it was just, it was Hunter apparently yeah. who. Yeah. Was that correct? Yeah, so what happened was uh, Frank O'Grady is the priest's name. Yeah. Um, and, and another weird thing, my cousin, who's the Bishop of Patterson in New Jersey, who we saw this weekend because he came home for the funeral, um, that priest, Father Frank, is from Patterson, New Jersey. He's That's his... Uh, his yeah his diocese there yeah. so um, my cousin also knew him um, which is which is strange and then what happened was he was he's been sent here for a couple of months um, he's originally you know obviously Irish, Irish. Um, was in the military um, and was in the Walter Reed hospital as the pastor so that's the military hospital and that's where Bo passed away so he had spent quite a lot of time with them in the lead up to his death and praying with them and um, you know they're obviously a family of great um, Catholic faith, and they're quite, you know, quite fa- famous about the priest or the the president going to mass every day. Um, so uh, the priest was with them quite a lot. And Hunter, who Bo and Hunter, obviously two brothers, um, spent a lot of time with Bo in his final few weeks and got to know um, Father Frank quite well. And it was only when the name came up, I think Father Richard Givens said, "Oh, we have a priest here who is in the Walter Reed Hospital." And they said, oh, really, what's his name? Oh, it's Father Frank O'Grady. Oh, my goodness, we know him well. Like, he was Mm. so good to Bo. And then they went and made a phone call and got him to come over. And he was outside in the hope of maybe seeing them go past in the cavalcade. So it was so so lovely. And then he got to spend some time with them and have some private time and say some prayers with them. Mm. And they had got to know him quite well over that sad time. So it was really like that. That was kind of spooky almost, you know, what was the chances of it happening. There must be hospices all over this country who are slightly jealous of not having President Joe Biden as their patron because I suppose they're such extraordinary places, hospices. But it's hard to fundraise. It's difficult to fundraise. Go back to 2017, Martina, you're the CEO now. What was it that sparked that campaign to have a hospice built in the first place? Um, I think the credit for that has to go to our predecessors. And, uh, you know, the, the the foundation was found on the basis that people at end of life were not getting dignity and respect when they most needed it. So it has grown over the 30 years from one doctor and one nurse to now a team of over 30 medical professionals in the, in the community. But the dream was always to have a hospice in Mayo and a mm. hospice in Roscommon. And, you know, these things don't happen overnight um, but you need magic moments like the uh, President Joe Biden coming to be your patron and it did he he gave 
great credit and he did again a few weeks ago to the fundraisers to the volunteers to the support groups. And the GP in Westport he was very important was yes, he Dr. Bert Dr. Farrell? Dr. Bert O'Farrell God rest yeah. him he was our fir- he was our uh, our founder and he was he was the man that was visiting the patients and he, he said it himself they were screaming in pain and he just said there's no dignity mm. here so it is and that, that that's why it was found and that ethos has never changed in the 30 years from our voluntary board to our staff to the volunteers it's always about making this service better, developing it and not resting on our laurels. And we're, very, we're, we've, we're the only two hospices in the country that have been built entirely from fundraised income. It cost 16 and a half million to build both of those hospices and to get them done in five years. So from tender to build to opened to patients and both full as we speak here today. So it, it has been an incredible effort, but it's been a great, I know people talk about a journey, but it has been an incredible five years. It's an incredible tribute, though, to all of you to, I mean, I'm associated with other hospitals like Laura Lim and fundraising is hard, but to fundraise and to have built and keep those hospices going is amazing, Larita. Yeah, it's a great legacy to the people of Mayo and Roscommon. Mm. And I think it was, our, I suppose, our duty as the people who were in charge of it at the time yeah. to be able to walk away from it and not have a bank loan for families and people to have to be worrying about how it's going to be funded for the rest of its life. Mm. And that was... With all thanks to people who've been, as Martina said, fundraising for years and then um, major donors who came on board and, you know, um, people from generally from Mayo and Roscommon that were able to answer the call Mm. and be involved in it. And like even since I started fundraising in 2014, I think it was, you're out there and you're shaking buckets and you're Mm. asking people to like give you a donation or buy a ticket. And every single time people would say to you, well, of course, I'd love to support the hospice because you never know when you're going to have to use the service yourself or somebody. And unfortunately, every single week you're talking to somebody who's had to use the service, who's had to use the service. Fortunately or unfortunately, we're so lucky now to have the facility there and to have that. It's just the most amazing place. And I know I'm working there, but I've got to see it from ground up and see the way it was built. And we learned lessons from other hospices, older hospices that said, oh, if we had this or if we had that, we'd be so lucky. Mm -hmm. So we were able to have our rooms, each room individually has a a door that you can pull and let the bed out for a patient to feel the rain one last time or the wind or the sun one last time on their faces. And there's a little private garden in each room. So it's it's so patient-centred. It's so created with the patient in mind yeah. like we, we've chef there we had a wedding there in the Mayo Hospice recently yeah. where the chef was able to cook um, you know food the for them and, and do everything. a wedding cake and, like it's just yeah, spectacular and, yeah. and it is it, it, like Larita's 100% right we, we wouldn't have been able to achieve this building without the help of other hospices but it is only a building without the staff Mm-hmm. And the staff in there are just in both hospices are they're just incredible. And they, you know, our ethos was that this was going to be a home from home for mm-hmm. everyone that went through the front doors. And that's what they make it. It's it's and it's not it's not just about the patient. It's about the family and the, the network they have around them. And while people are you know, when they hear the word hospice or they hear the word palliative care and they're being referred, there's a fear and it's a, there's an understandable fear. But what they do is they help them live as well as they can for as long as they can. Mm. Yes, they have a life limiting illness. They're facing a diagnosis. They're facing the end of their life. But they these staff and the nurses in the community make that so 
easy and they make it a safe and secure place. Because yeah. I thought it was beautiful reading that brief Cora gave me this morning. You mentioned it there, Lorita, that, you know, you have these gardens, but that mm. this one person who wanted to feel the rain on their face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know there's something Isn't there. it? Yeah, that, that came actually from... Um, St. Francis Hospice in Blanchardstown yeah. when we went there to visit and they, they their their doors were wide enough to let the the um the bed out and they told us they had a patient there who loved the rain and for she wanted to feel the rain in her face and they were able to bring her and she passed away an hour later but she got what she wanted and the research shows what people miss at end of life are the basic things. They miss nature. They miss the weather. They miss um, the things we all take the for things granted. We take for granted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah. Um, it's just Martina spoke about, and, and I experienced it with my own mother. Um, this thing of palliative care and the word hospice. Oh, it's like a frightening word. You know, my mother was faced with a uh, diagnosis of terminal cancer. She had breast cancer, but by the time it was found it was it was too far gone and she was sick for about four and a half years but I'll never forget in the hospital they had mentioned to us about her hospice before Mm. taking palliative care and she was like no 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 so afraid of it even though I worked there you know and even though I talked about it all the time so it's one thing for people who are listening today to be mindful that palliative Mm. care is not a bad word hospice care is accepted let it into your life because it will help you it will change your life Mm. and it will make your your life a lot more easier and like my mother had such comfort with it at the end of, of mm-hmm. her life and she didn't have our hospice wasn't opened at the time um, but our home our home care team were there, our psychotherapists were there, there was someone to call to her and say it's okay, you're going to be okay you're, you're going to be able to let go and it's not going to be the worst thing in the world you know mm-hmm. and she was and like my mum was in her 70s when she passed away but like they do this with patients who are in their 30s, 40s who have young small kids and they help them bridge that gap mm-hmm. of going away and leaving their small kids kids, which must be one of the hardest things to be able to do knowing that it's coming and it's coming towards you but it does help you big time it helps you in every way in terms of pain and in terms of dealing with things Mm -hmm. so I would ask and I would ask anyone who's listening to not be afraid of the word hospice or palliative Mm -hmm. care and it's not Ultimately, it's not always end of life. You know, there are mm. some people who go in there and come back out of hospice and, you know, get get well again. You know, so yeah, it's 70%, 70% of patients that go into hospice are discharged again. And and the care doesn't stop either at the, uh, at the end of life for the family. That will continue to look after your family afterwards. So it's, I think it has come on so much in 30 years that it has gone from being just end of life to and, and helping people to die with dignity and respect, but it's helping people to live as well. And you both want to expand, don't you, as we close? You'd like yeah. maybe, it's always so sad, I always think, with children, but maybe to try and have some kind of hospice care yeah. like Laurel Lynn in the West as well. That, oh, yeah, that would be the, the the dream. And that is the vision now. And our board are 100% behind this because there is, Laurel Lynn are wonderful. Mm. And one of our families that used Laurel Lynn and had used our service as well, their child called it the best hotel in Ireland. <laughs> so our aim is now to build the best That's hotel okay. in the West for there's 90 families from Donegal to Galway with children with life-limiting illnesses. 26 of them are actively being looked after by nurses in the community. Uh, but there's no reason why somebody from Belmullet should have to travel mm. four hours or eight hour round trip with their child. That that service should be available in the West. And, you know, I, I, we won't rest until that happens. 
Yeah. 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 Like we had a family. We had a, a man whose wife died, and they had small kids, mm. and he had to go to Galway Hospice at the time. We didn't have a hospice, and he said to me it was so difficult because he had to try and keep them in their natural environment by sending them to school, mm. trying to get up in the morning, get them out to school, mm. go and spend the rest of the day with his wife in Galway, have to come back to pick them up. And there was, you know, it was a long journey for him. And that long journey, you know, takes its toll on everybody oh, in the family, yeah. you know. It, and it means that the kids are away from their siblings if if it's a kid that needs to be looked after or the parents are away so you know if they're mm. if they're closer to home there's you know they can be more involved and that's one of the biggest issues with with children with families with children with life limiting illnesses the siblings need to be looked after as well mm. as the parents and the child well, look, Martina Jennings and Loretta Blewett, it's been brilliant. C- congratulations to both of you and all you've achieved with the hospices. Final quick question to you, Loretta. You must be happy your cousin's going to run again, are you? <laughs> I am, yeah. Um, I think it was the worst kept secret, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. It was It was inevitable, but uh, it'll be an interesting uh, challenge now ahead. It's a long road. It's not like our politics here, so um, we'll have to go out and keep a close eye on him. I think yeah. I turned things. I went to Nevada when he was uh, running for president. I remind him of this all the time. Things weren't looking good and then <laughs> Nevada came and the next thing North Carolina, South Carolina turned it all. So, so he I'm needs hoping, your back I'm going there. back, yeah. I'm going back. <laughs> Loretta Martina, thanks so much Thank and keep you. all your great work. We'll take a break.